0: Hello, and welcome to the Asia Essential Antitrust podcast series from Freshfields. In this series, we speak with our local experts in Asia to bring you the latest competition law trends and updates in the region. My name is Alistair Mordant, and I'm the co head of the Freshfields Antitrust Practice in Asia. This is the third episode of our series, and today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome three colleagues from our Vietnam offices. Tony Foster is the managing partner of the Freshfields Vietnam Practice and has spent more than 25 years advising on deals in Vietnam. He's had a front row seat during the development of the country's legal system since it opened up its economy to the world. Great to have you with us, Tony. Hi there,
1: thanks for inviting me.
0: An Huang Ha is a senior associate with more than 15 years of experience advising investors on Vietnamese law. Ha is based in Hanoi, along with Tony. Welcome, Ha. Thanks for having me and pleased to be with you today. And last but by no means least, Lê Hai Dung is an associate based in our Ho Chi Minh City office. Thanks for joining, Hai Dung.
2: Hello, Aleste. I'm very delighted to talk today with listeners of ACT Podcasts.
0: All three of our speakers regularly advise our clients on Vietnam's new competition law, and they've been involved in a number of merger cases notified to the authority, including the first case decided under the law. So in today's discussion, I want to focus on Vietnam's merger regime and what it means for our clients who are doing deals with a Vietnam connection. Before we dive into the detail, Tony, I thought we might start by talking inbound investment into Vietnam. So how would you describe the state of the Vietnamese economy at the moment?
1: Well, it's been rather resilient, all things considered. Uh, The tourism sector was obviously decimated last year by COVID, but the overall economy grew uh, about 3%, which is probably one of the few countries in the world that grew at all last year. This year, the economy, I think, is set to grow by about 6.5%, in part because we've been quite successful in controlling COVID here. But also, there's been a strong performance by export-oriented manufacturers, and there's been a fairly robust recovery in domestic demand. Foreign investors, I think, are still investing at roughly similar rates to the past, and partly because there have been some fairly significant moves out of China and into Vietnam that have resulted from the recent trade frictions between the US and China. But partly also, I think, the growing importance of Southeast Asia generally and the stability of Vietnam compared to most others in the region. It's all very healthy. The deals are not only more numerous, but they're also getting larger. I mean, a billion dollar deals, billion dollar plus deals now are relatively common, which would have been very difficult to envisage even five years ago, I'd say.
0: Wow. So I I suppose it's fair to say that Vietnam has become something of a sort of hot destination for foreign investors in the last few years. And um, can, can you tell us anything, you know, something more about this or the sort type of investment activity
1: that you're seeing? We're seeing uh, multinationals investing, strategic investors, private equity funds, financial investors. It runs a fairly broad range. The investors are looking at quite a wide range of sectors. I'd say logistics, education. Healthcare, tech, banking and finance, uh, real estate, renewable energy. I mean, it's a wide range. You know, we've worked on interesting deals in all of those sectors recently. And by and large, um, many of them nowadays require a merger control analysis and often a notification filing.
0: Well, that's a Perfect segue into sort of really what I wanted to focus on today. And maybe if I can turn to you, Haidong, you could tell us a little bit about Vietnam's new competition law.
2: We recently have a new competition law that the, the government passed on the 12th of June 2018. The, the, the law came into force uh, in the 1st of July 2019. Uh however I, I think that the the new merger control regime that um only became operational uh when the when the government issued uh decree thirty five on the fifteenth of may twenty twenty, which provided guidance uh for some articles of the law, including the, the specific filing threshold and the definition of acquisition of control.
0: Okay, so it's still it's still pretty new. I mean it we're almost coming up to its first anniversary of the merger control regime. Did the new law also bring into force, a a new government agency?
2: Yeah, we, we are going to have a, a new authority, but uh, until now it, it hasn't been uh, created yet. The, the new competition authority will be the, the National Competition Commissions, and uh, we are waiting for it to be set up. So in the interim, the, the Vietnamese uh, Ministry of uh, Industry and Trade and uh, all the case officers from the previous uh, competition authority are in charge to deal with the competition matters and um, to enforce the merger control in Vietnam to fill in the gap. So we call this the VCA.
0: Okay, well, that's helpful to know. And I suppose it's comforting to know that someone's uh, looking after things, even if the um that the new National Competition Commission itself hasn't hasn't quite yet been created. Ha, turning to you, the merger control regime, Tony mentioned that you're now advising clients, you know, routinely on the application of the regime. Can you just give us a bit of an, an overview of it and what it entails?
3: Yeah, uh, sure. You know, generally speaking, a merger filing is required if uh, two conditions are met. First, you know, there is an... Uh, economic concentration, we can take, uh, you know, the form of acquisition of company, merger or creation of uh, joint ventures in Vietnam. And second, you know, one of the applicable uh, filing thresholds is mad. Uh, you know, as you might know, the, the merger filing in Vietnam is uh, mandatory and suspensory. That means, you know, the transaction cannot close until a clearance has been obtained. And a failing to make a merger filing would expose the party to certain administrative fine, and we will get into that later, But you know, as is similar in other countries, the filing threshold are related to various uh, metrics such as turnover, assets, market shares in Vietnam, and for onshore transaction, the deal uh, value. Okay,
0: and so. You know, it's not surprising, I guess, to hear that mergers and acquisitions and JVs are caught by the regime. One of the questions we often get asked is is about minority acquisitions and and whether they can be caught as well. So
3: what's the position on those types of acquisitions in Vietnam? Technically, yes. So long as there is an acquisition of control and subject, of course, to one of the filing thresholds being met. Regarding what amount to control, this is something you know, divide very broadly under the law, potentially, you know, more broadly than similar notion of control under, for example, European merger rules. Notably, control of minority uh, investment exists not only where the shareholder has the right to make decisions regarding certain matters, such as appointment or removal of majority of the directors on the board. the chairman of the member council or the CEO, but it's also in relation to the rather general and potential broad category of what is defined as something, you know, important um, uh, business activity. Further, you know, the law is unclear on whether the typical minority uh, shelter protection right could amount to control. Based on the precedent outside of Vietnam, we would argue that they should not, but this something you know remain unofficially untested with the v c a
1: yeah, yeah, I agree with that, but lack of clarity is is actually built into nearly all Vietnamese law for standard reasons of bureaucratic control. The rules are quite broad and unclear on purpose, and so that's where there's often a need to have informal discussions with the regulator to resolve particular situations and it helps uh, to have those long-standing relationships with them so that the discussions can have as solid a basis as possible.
0: Yeah, no, that's helpful. And interesting that your point, Tony, about sort of some of this lack of clarity and um, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to, to know that, you know, sometimes that can be overcome through informal discussions, etc., Har, I want to come back to the, to the notification threshold. You mentioned, you know, different measures like assets, turnover, etc., which sort of resonate with other regimes, although sometimes you find a regime that is only focused on on turnover, possibly assets, but not necessarily multiple different measures. And it sounds like there
3: are multiple ones here. C- can you just tell us a little bit more about the thresholds? Sure. You know, in, in the law, there are four basic thresholds but you need only trigger one of them for filing uh, to be required. The first threshold is a turnover-based one. That means you know, one of the parties must have turnover on a group-wide basis of more than €3,000 uh, or more, which is around €110 million. Euros. And the second threshold is the same as the first one, but this time for asset. Uh, that means one of the parties must have assets in Vietnam with a value of 3,000 billion VND or more. And the third threshold uh, is about the combined market shares of the party voting the um, merger, and does require the party to have a combined market share of 20% or more. The fourth and final threshold uh, only applies to onshore transactions and is met when the transaction value is more than is 1000 billion BND or more, which is roughly around uh, 30 million euros, which is not particularly high. There are also other sector-specific thresholds for certain industries, including insurance, security and banking. Okay, that well, that's very helpful and also very clear.
0: If I've understood correctly the turnover and the assets threshold, it sounds as though you could trigger a filing where one party has the requisite amount of assets or turnover in Vietnam, but the other doesn't. Is there some sort of foreign to foreign exemption or local nexus requirement?
3: Yeah, that that's a very good question. I, um, you know, a strict interpretation of the threshold would suggest that you know if one of or more of them is exceeded, then a filing uh, is technically required. However, you know our reading of the law is that uh, it only applies in the first place where the transaction has an impact on competition in Vietnam. So, for example, where the acquirer have activity in Vietnam but the target does not, then we would argue that the law isn't engaged and therefore the filing is not technically triggered. I hasten to add that uh, this view has not been tested Formally by the VCA, and it would be always be prudent to get Vietnamese you know law advice on this point before taking a view that a filing is not trigger on this basis.
1: Yeah, you can you can get uh, informal comfort on things like that, but I think it's also just as important to look at the big picture because it's uh, highly unlikely that the enforcement body which anyway really doesn't exist at the moment anyway will take action in respect of an acquisition by a foreign company of a non-vietnamese company with no activities in vietnam uh, especially when there are so many domestic competition issues that aren't being addressed
0: yeah that's a, that's a very good point and it b- brings me on to ask about the sort of the the busyness levels of the the vca i mean Maybe, Hai Dung, I could ask you how many cases are, are being notified at the moment to, to the authority, and are there particular sectors that are, appear to be sort of recurring?
2: We are aware that over the last 12 months, um, there were around 62 filings that have been made to the VCA. So, this, uh, this is a huge change compared with the, with the old competition regime, where we, uh, we typically have uh, two or three filings uh, per year. So um, these filings cover a variety of sectors including the real estate, the manufacturing, financial, logistics services, constructions and energy.
0: Okay, that's really quite a big uptick, isn't it, um, from the old regime. Once you, you've identified uh, that the filings required, one, one of the questions that clients always ask is, so look, how long is it going to take? What's the process? So What's the answer for Vietnam?
3: Yeah, for a simple, you know, no issues case, the PCA normally has seven days to check that the submission is complete. And following that, they would have uh, 30 days to carry out a preliminary review, we call it phase one review. And at the end of that, the PCA will either clear the transaction or make a decision on opening an official review, we call it phase two review. And when this happened, the review will take a further 90 days, which can be extended by uh, 60 days. But so far, uh, most cases has been clear at phase one, and with only a small number of cases have to go through phase two. Uh,
0: that, that, that's interesting. Huh? Have you seen any sort of um, impact from COVID-19 in terms of sort of prolonged uh, review periods for the VCA?
3: No, not really. We, we have not seen any discernible impact on the review uh, process from the pandemic. That's good news. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that,
0: that is good news. And y- y- you mentioned earlier about penalties for failure to file. Can you tell us what the theoretical maximum is maybe and, and also what the VCA has done in practice in terms of actually imposing any, any fines to date?
3: Yeah, sure. Technically, if a transaction is notifiable, but the party fail to make the filing, then the primary sanction that they would be exposed to, which is potential administrative fine, that could range from 1% to 5% of the total turnover of each party, but not the turnover of its group company, but uh, calculated on the basis of the number uh, in the uh, fiscal year prior to the year of closing of the uh, merger. And on your second question, you know, have any FI being imposed by, by the VCA? So the answer is that, you know, no, under the new law, the VCA have not taken any enforcement action, but time will tell how aggressive the VCA will be. And in particular, whether or not the VCA would impose penalty in relation to an offshore transaction, a merger taking place offshore. Yeah,
0: I guess you don't want to be the guinea pig for for that particular uh, issue in terms of um, the VCA imposing its first fine. I don't you mentioned sixty two filings in the past 12 months and just to get a feel for sort of how aggressive the VCA's been, um, can you just tell us how many of those cases were were cleared unconditionally uh, was it all of them or, or or were some subject to some sort of a remedy?
2: Well, well, uh, of the of the sixty two cases um, that notified to the VCA that I mentioned earlier, uh, fifty two of them were clear unconditionally, and uh, there were around ten cases um, were clear with remedies.
0: Oh wow! Okay, T- ten cases is is a relatively high hit rate, I, I guess you could say. But I suppose it also depends on sort of how severe those remedies were, um, and as you probably know. In a number of jurisdictions around the world, agencies tend to favour structural remedies over some sort of form of behavioural commitment. What types of remedies were imposed in those 10 cases?
2: That is a good question. In fact, uh, the VCA has not imposed structural remedies in any cases. Uh, In relation to behavioral commitments, rather than requiring specific conduct uh, for the merged entity, in the 10 remedy cases I mentioned, the VCA has instead uh, imposed a general requirement on the merged entity to report to the VCA any change in its business activities that result in a change in the structure of the relevant market uh, or a requirement not to abuse uh, its position post-merger. So while you write uh, that the number of remedy cases is quite high, the remedies imposed to date are arguably not too onerous on merging parties.
0: Tony, I want to bring you back in here because it it seems to me as though the regime is quite complex because it's got quite broad scope with the jurisdictional thresholds. There are a pretty significant number of cases being notified now also a fair number that are resulting in a remedy or arguably those remedies are not I guess not as onerous as, as they could be um, if, if they were structural in nature there's the possibility of being fined for not notifying but that hasn't happened in practice yet so how are you and the team advising our clients on on sort of understanding the regime and, and the risks involved should they either file or, or not file
1: well the the, the the short answer to that, of course, is that in any specific situation they should uh, speak with their lawyers uh, like how high doing in fact, and to speak to them early to understand what the risks might be arising out of that situation. Uh, and if a filing actually is required, then the other thing is to get it in sooner rather than later. especially if you're working on a global transaction involving Vietnam, because you wouldn't want the Vietnamese uh, tail to wag the global dog. Well,
0: look, I think this has been a a really fascinating discussion, and I I wanted to sort of maybe wrap up by asking maybe, Har, if you would please sort of share a couple of practical tips that our our clients should be thinking about um, if indeed they do decide
3: to make a filing in Vietnam? Sure, you know, based on our experience uh, working with the VCA, I would like to highlight two key points uh, for clients to consider. The first point is about timing. And as you know, you know, with any merger filing process, you need to factor in the preparation time, as well as the time uh, taken by the VCA to review uh, the transaction into the deal uh, timetable. And the second point is somewhat uh, unique to Vietnam, and it relates to the use of uh, third-party consultant. Even if your case does not raise any substantive uh, competition issue, but you need to consider hiring a consultant to assist you with uh, the preparation of the filing. This is because the VCA uh, routinely expects the party to provide a third-party report to support their claim, regarding issues like market definition, market change, impact on the competition uh, in Vietnam, etc. And the preparation such report can take a little time. And so this needs to be uh, factored into uh, the new timetable. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, thank you.
0: On, on that note, I think that's a, a great place to finish up. I want to extend my thanks, first of all, to our speakers. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience with us. Um, so thank you, Tony. Thank you, Har. And, and, and thank you, Haidung.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. And thanks very much also to our listeners. I hope you found today's podcast informative. Uh, we'll be planning another one for you soon. But in the meantime, please do take a look at our Antitrust in Asia hub, which is on the freshfields.com website. The Hub's got lots of useful information about antitrust regimes, rules, enforcement activity in Asia. Or, of course, don't hesitate to contact one of us or one of your usual Freshfields contacts. So many thanks indeed for joining us today.